Christ to live, gain to die. We've just been reminded in the children's talk about some of those in the very early times in the Old Testament who lived for hundreds of years. This morning we're going to be considering one who by comparison to them, well, he lived a very short life. But for the believer, even if you live only a short life, eternal glory awaits. A short life, but eternal glory. At this point in Matthew's Gospel, it's impossible to see, it's impossible not to see that this Jesus of Nazareth is like no other man before or since. Uh, the range and the number of miracles that he's been able to perform, the authority with which he teaches is simply unheard of. Even, even place him alongside the likes of Elijah and Elisha and the other great prophets of God in the Old Testament. You might very reasonably therefore suppose that with so much heavenly power and authority and grace and mercy openly on display in the life of Jesus, surely only a very strange minority would ever think of rejecting him. However, as we saw at the end of chapter 13, Matthew is going to start to show us just how many people will begin to reject him, just how many people will turn against Christ despite his apparent popularity. And Matthew kind of causes us to sit up and take notice as his focus shifts very abruptly at chapter 14. Uh, and it brings us to this incident involving Herod. Herod the Tetrarch, he's introduced to us there, uh, this is Herod Antipas, and this man is one of the sons of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great, he was the king at the time of the birth of Jesus. Uh, Herod the Great was the king who the wise men from the east came and spoke to. The king who claimed that he too wanted to worship the newborn king, but who only wanted to kill him. Uh, the king who then had all of the baby boys aged two years and under killed when he realised that the wise men had tricked him and gone home another way. Well, that Herod who we read of during the accounts of Christ's birth is the father of this Herod in chapter 14. And this Herod isn't much better than his father. They were actually a very, a very dodgy, shady notorious family. They weren't even true Jews. This Herod had the title of Tetrarch. Now that's a, a position granted to him and others like him by the Romans. The Romans were very savvy when it came to controlling regional politics across their vast empire. They allowed local officials to act as regional governors over their own people. In so doing, they were doing much of Rome's work for them, keeping the locals under control, making sure they didn't cause too much trouble, and making sure they paid all their taxes and, and so on. 
by granting them this position of rank, by giving them a degree of power. These local officials like Herod were kept sweet by the Romans, yet remained firmly in Rome's pocket. Rome remained very much in charge overall. But this Herod has this this local uh, kind of governor-type authority. And this little episode in verses 1 to 12 teaches us some very helpful things. And I want to consider three lessons that we can learn from this passage this morning. The first is this. The sinful heart does not like having its sins exposed. Now, even a Christian with a genuinely converted heart does not enjoy having their sins exposed. But a true Christian will not react and behave like Herod did. A true Christian, when confronted with their sin, a true Christian will be filled with sorrow and grief and repentance. A Christian will take themselves in confession of their sins to Christ for forgiveness and for cleansing and for restoration. I hope you've done that. I hope you do that. But it's the sinful heart which reacts with anger. It's a sinful heart which is filled with indignation when sins are exposed. Filled with indignation against the one who would dare to bring such an accusation against them. This is one of the ways that you can tell the wheat from the tares. How do you respond when your sins are exposed? Herod has previously been confronted by John the Baptist. We see that in verse 4. And he's been confronted regarding his immoral and sinful relationship with this woman who is his wife, Herodias. Herod had a brother called Philip, and Herodias had been married to Philip. So she was Herod's sister-in-law at that point. But Herod had lusted after Herodias and she after him. So each of them had divorced their original spouse and got married. In fact, one of the things you can learn if you look into these, uh, the histories of these families is that this family actually had lots of incestuous relationships within it. It led to a family tree that was really complicated and twisted. So much so, for example, that this daughter who does the dancing in verse 6 The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that her name was Salome. She would later marry her half-uncle. And so warped were their family relationships that her marriage to her half-uncle would make her both a sister-in-law and an aunt to her own mother. If you can go away and work that one out, you've done better than me. But that's the reality of the twisted relationships within this family. So with this Herod, Herod Antipas, for such a public figure to present such an awful testimony and example in Israel, John the Baptist has called him out and rebuked him 
over his relationship with his wife. Now, unsurprisingly, neither Herod nor Herodias were too chuffed about that. And although Mark tells us that at first Herod was much more open to listen to John and that the the animosity was driven initially by Herodias, Herod nevertheless has agreed to have John silenced. And initially he spared his life because he actually, at first he had a degree of respect for John the Baptist and so he spared him his life and had him thrown into prison. But it was actually Herodias who was the real driving force behind it at that point. And so the one who would dare to speak out against sin is silenced. That's not too different from our present day situation, is it? Sinners do not like their sin to be exposed and to be labelled as sin. And so they seek to silence the voice that's making things so uncomfortable. They will, won't they? But we see it's nothing new. It happened all through the Old Testament. It happened to John the Baptist 2,000 years ago. It happened to the martyrs who were burned to death in English cities 500 years ago. The sinful heart hasn't changed. And the sinful heart continues to react the way the, sinful, the way the sinful heart has always reacted. The sinful heart is as wicked and corrupt as it's always been. There are no new sins circulating today that the world has never seen or known before. Some perhaps are more public. Some perhaps now are more tolerated than they have been for a very long time, but they're not new. Neither is the vicious antagonism which rises up against those who would speak out against them. John the Baptist is going to lose his head for doing it. Godly believers have always been under threat like this. Godly believers have often been far more under threat than we are even at the moment in our own land. We've had it unusually easy in Western Europe in the last few hundred years. Uh, Don't for a moment imagine that God owes us something better. This issue though of acknowledging and confessing your sin, this actually lies at the heart of all that Jesus came into the world to do that men and women would acknowledge and confess their sins. The Bible says, yes, he came into the world to save sinners. He came to seek and to save the lost, to give his life a ransom for sin. But if you would enter into the blessings of this salvation, if you would enter into the privileges of this salvation, you must come to Christ in confession and repentance of your sins. Have you done that? Because John the Baptist was right. John the Baptist was fulfilling the very ministry that God had given him to do in calling out for repentance from everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're the the lowliest slave. It doesn't matter whether you're Herod. You must repent of your sin. Have you done that? 
Do you remember back in chapter 9 where Matthew records his own call to follow Christ? The Pharisees were appalled when Matthew invited all of his tax collector friends into his house for a meal, and there's Jesus sitting in the midst of them. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and with sinners, is the accusation that's made. And do you remember how Jesus replied? Those who are well have no need of a, of a physician. It's those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus isn't suggesting that there are those who have no need of repentance. What he is saying is there's no coming to Christ without knowing and confessing that you are a sinner and then to repent of your sin. The sinful heart despises having its sin exposed. But the believing heart rejoices in such truth because it was the, it was the knowledge and the conviction of your sin which caused you to run to Christ. It was the knowledge and conviction of your sin that made you realise that He is my only hope. Only He can save me from my sin. Only He can save me from the consequences of my sin. Only He can save me from the judgment that will come upon me because of my sin. Only Christ can do this. If you're unsaved this morning, on the day of Christ's return, when he sends his angels to separate the wheat from the tares, which we heard about a few weeks ago in chapter 13, who do you want to be standing shoulder to shoulder with? Do you want to be standing shoulder to shoulder with a man like Herod? Or with a man like John the Baptist? Because it will be one or the other. The day is approaching when Herod will yet acknowledge all of his sin. And he will pay for his sins for all of eternity. Who do you choose to be with on that day? The sinful heart does not enjoy having its sin exposed. But if you will turn to Christ, there is forgiveness, there is blessing, there is hope, there is rejoicing. Secondly, Herod's sinful heart is plagued by his conscience. Herod knows the accusation made against him by John is true, but he can't really deny it. Despite Herod's initial interest in John, and despite his initial, not total rejection of the message that John has brought, Herod's own wickedness, and with the help of his wife, well, that all gets the better of him. He agrees to silence John and has him imprisoned. But he also has a great fear, that, which is that of losing face and losing popularity with the masses who have loved John's ministry. And perhaps he also fears how Rome will react 
if he loses control of these people. But Herodias, she has no such scruples. She's very shrewd and she exploits this publicly witnessed promise that Herod gives to her daughter by demanding the head of John the Baptist. And once her daughter's dancing for Herod is finished, and you see that there in verses 6 to 11, this is exactly how Herodias exploits this situation to be rid of John completely. Herod has never really wanted this, but he caves in and he grants her request. And so now we understand Herod's fear in verses 1 and 2 as he hears about the ministry of Jesus. Herod draws this conclusion. This is John the Baptist. He's come back from the dead and he's going to come back and get me. Because Herod is plagued by his conscience over these things. Herod's soul is pierced by his own conscience. He knows the guilt of his sin, of which John has accused him. He knows the wickedness and the guilt of the actions that he's taken against John. And his conscience convicts him that such sins will one day be found out. This is John. He's not letting me go. Herod has this conviction. You cannot get away with your sins. You cannot escape sin's judgment. You cannot escape sin's consequences. This is John the Baptist. He's come back to get me. There's nothing more effective at keeping you awake at night than a guilty conscience. God has placed a witness inside you. A witness who testifies and gives evidence against you. And it's your own conscience. It's like being, it's like being in a court of law and having been charged with a crime. And the prosecution calls in a witness to give evidence against you. And it comes in the form of your own conscience. And your own conscience is giving evidence against you within your own soul. Can you see the guilty person in this room, asks the barrister. Yes, shouts out your own conscience, it's me. In the Old Testament, a man like King David, for a time, he managed to smother and stifle his conscience sufficiently for him to commit great sin with Bathsheba and then against her husband, Uriah. But... It was then his conscience which God aroused in him as God sent his prophet Nathan to confront David over these sins. You can silence your own conscience for a time, but you cannot escape the day when God will expose and reveal all of your sin and you know you have nowhere to run and your own conscience within you is convicting you In our sin, we try to stifle conscience. We try to find all kinds of reasons to excuse ourselves. But as Herod discovered, he finds himself powerless to prevent his conscience rearing up within himself. 
He's done everything he can to silence the voice that accused him, John. But he discovers that there's another accusing voice that's resonating in his own heart long after the voice of John has disappeared from his ears. And Herod's conscience is is working within him. And I want to encourage those of you who pray over loved ones who are not yet saved. The seeds of the gospel that have been planted, well, they may not yet be lost. And conscience can yet be stirred up. So keep on praying. Pray that the conscience will be stirred. Pray that the Lord will so trouble those who are not saved that they will come to see and understand, they will only find their rest when they turn to Christ. That there is nowhere else that they will find that rest. Pray that the Lord would stir them up. Pray that the Lord would trouble them, that they might turn to Christ. Conscience on its own cannot save you, but it can be used of God to cause sinners to flee to Christ where your conscience may be cleansed, that your conscience will trouble you. You can leave this place this morning with sins forgiven. You can leave this place this morning with conscience cleansed. You can leave this place this morning at peace with God if you've never known those things. There's nothing else in this whole world to match that. And then from this passage this morning, I want to bring one final lesson. And this is a third point, particularly for Christians who are here this morning. Believers must not look for their reward in this world. Do not look for or expect any kind of reward in this world because you're a Christian or as a Christian. There are those in the Christian world who would have you believe that to live a life that is truly blessed by God is to have a life which is filled with many of the trappings of success that the ungodly in this world lust after. That if you are a Christian, it is completely reasonable to expect that as a result of being a Christian, you can hope to enjoy a comfortable relatively prosperous, trouble-free lifestyle in which you've been able to overcome and rise above many of the ills that people experience in this world. And that's what it means to be a Christian. That God will lift you and raise you so that somehow the evils of this world just don't touch you in any way at all. And life's just easy. So you'll enjoy a successful career. You should expect it as a Christian. You'll enjoy a good level of income. You should expect it as a Christian. You'll enjoy relatively stable health, long into old age. You should expect that as a Christian, they will say. Of course, there are two main problems with this way of thinking. Number one, nowhere is that taught in the Bible. Number two, Often, exactly the opposite is seen. 
in those who are obviously walking closely with their Lord and Saviour. John the Baptist being an obvious case in point. If ever there was an example of godliness which went unrewarded in this life, well, it's John the Baptist. Do you recall what Jesus said about him back in chapter 11? Among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist? Well, what does that rising in greatness mean in reality? Well, it means that within a few years at the most, since he began his preaching ministry, the ministry that he'd been conceived for in his mother's womb, he finds himself on the receiving end of this kind of hatred and in prison. John the Baptist fulfilled God's calling on his life with great steadfastness, with boldness, with faith. And yet, after only a very short period of ministry, he's thrown into prison, and still only in his early 30s, he's beheaded and loses his life. And all thanks to the spitefulness of an adulterous woman with her malicious husband. Because Christian friends, God's ways, God's timing, God's thoughts, God's purposes, they're not like ours. God has in view plans and purposes which span all of eternity, not just a few short years. God has in view eternal blessings, the majority of which lie beyond the grave and which will last forever. Not some temporary betterment consisting of those things which will very soon all be burnt up anyway. God has in view a life set free from sin and pain and anguish and sorrow, but that won't be in the here and now. God has in view a life of unending peace and joy, which you can know in the here and now. But the fullness of all of these things will be in eternity with Christ. J.C. Ryle put it like this, God's children must not look for their reward in this world. Let all true Christians remember that their best things are yet to come. And by that he means in heaven for eternity. Let us count it no strange thing if we have sufferings in this present time. It is a season of probation. We are still at school. We are learning patience, gentleness, meekness, which we could hardly learn if we had our good things now. But there is eternity. For this let us wait quietly, because eternity will make amends for everything. And then he quotes Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, our light affliction, which is for the moment. It works for us more and more, this exceedingly eternal weight of glory. And remember that on the day 
when you enter into all that God has prepared for you, remember that on that day, that will also be the day when all will be judged and when God's perfect and righteous justice is dispensed against all the evil and wickedness that has taken place in this world. God has called you to live as light in the darkness, and the darkness is very real. Your calling is not to moan about the darkness. Your calling is not to spend all your time bewailing the darkness. Your calling is to shine in the darkness as the light in Christ that you now are. And such shining will often prove very costly. Sometimes it will even require that believers live far less than their threescore years and ten. And that by comparison, it seems to be the ungodly who are prospering in the world. It frequently seems to be that way. That was something that frequently perplexed the psalmist, if you read through the Psalms. But believers are not looking for any reward in this world, are you? Nor are they expecting to be able to stop the world from being the dark and evil place that it is. Our hope lies in the world to come. And in the meantime, all of our hope is rooted in Christ. As Christians looked at a young man like Robert Murray McShane, it was just as they were beginning to imagine the impact that he was going to have on this British Isles and beyond for the next 30, 40, 50 years. God took him at the age of 29. C.T. Studd and Eric Liddell, they would forsake the fame and fortune of international sporting success and they would exchange it all for the mission field where both of them would end their days. Liddell, at just 43 years of age, when he went to glory. Just as Jim Elliot and his companions landed in Ecuador to take the gospel to those native peoples and were cut down and killed almost before they'd begun. Just as John the Baptist had his head severed from his body and he's still only in his early 30s. Have these people somehow missed out on the blessing of God? Don't you believe it for a moment? God, what are you doing, some people may ask. What kind of blessed Christian life is this that these people have known? Yet Murray McShane is remembered still. His godly legacy by means of his te testimony and his writings. Studd and Liddell, they paved the way for more to take the gospel to China, Asia, Africa because all of them understood they're not looking for or expecting their reward in this world, but that which is yet to be and which they now enjoy forever, a building from God 
not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That is the Christian's hope in Christ. That is his promise to those who will be faithful to the end, be it long or be it short. It's not about any kind of reward in this world. It's not about any kind of prosperity in this world or a pleasant life of ease in this world. If you're looking for any of those things, you won't find them in the gospel of Christ. What you will find is sins forgiven, conscience cleansed, death defeated, and life without end. To know that one day soon you will be in that place where the praise is never ending. Dwelling where the glory never fades. Where countless worshippers share one song. And cries of worthy honour the Lamb. This world offers nothing to compare to that. So why would you not exchange that which you could never keep so that you may take hold of that which you will never lose. Sometimes a Christian life is very short but eternal glory awaits. Sometimes a Christian life may be very long but even that is nothing compared to the glory that awaits. And you may have those things, but you must repent of your sin and confess your sin and put all of your trust in Christ.